0: Bible reading is Amos chapter 8, verses 1 to 14. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He said. I see a basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple were turned to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up. And then sink like the river of Egypt. On that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again.
1: Uh, We come to the book of Amos now, and I invite you to grab a Bible, uh, or turn in your Bible to Amos chapter 8. We'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning. Uh, We've titled this series, The Unrelenting Roar. I don't know how many of you read the news recently, but Taronga Zoo had an escape. Uh, There was escape from an enclosure, and uh, lions were on the loose. I don't know if anyone was harmed, but uh, beware those of you who have plans to stay overnight uh, on one of those zoo excursions. I've never felt good about that. Uh, So more power to you. Uh, we're going to play a little, a little bit of name that fruit uh, this morning. So fruit's going to come up in our passage. We're going to name that fruit. So what is the fruit on the left and what is the fruit on the right? So the fruit on the left is? What? Nectarines. What's the fruit on the right? There we go. Well done. What's the fruit on the left? Oh, Somebody say pomegranate. Yep, that's right. What's the fruit on the right? Figs, yes, well done. All right, what's the fruit on the left? What's the fruit on the right? Are they the same fruit? What's the difference? Ah, there we go. Yeah, the one on the right is ripe. The one on the left is, is not. It's yet to ripe. Uh, thanks to Sue DeRoy for allowing me to snap photos. Those are her tomatoes right there. Uh, so looking forward to how they, how they ripen up. Um, This passage begins with the fourth vision, the fourth vision for the prophet Amos, and in this vision, it continues on from the third, and in this third, excuse me, in the third vision, something changed wherein God showed Amos a picture, and then he asked him, what do you see? And that's exactly what we have here, God showing Amos a picture and asking him what he sees. Uh, In terms of just a breakdown of what we're looking at today, uh, there's really three main sections. You have the vision, the vision, which is the picture of ripe fruit. Next, you have the verdict that God's going to give, and then finally, the sentence. So uh, it it very much proceeds like a courtroom, uh, but God's prophet is, is sort of watching this trial unfold and relaying the proceedings to us. I'll come back to this slide uh, in a minute. Here's where we're up to in the series, and usually you, when you see the words uh, witnesses, woe, judgment, silence, destruction, you're like, why are we, why are we preaching about this stuff? Um, and I hope to sort of tackle that quickly here. Most of us, when we ask the question, why are we studying Amos, you might be, you might be tempted to throw back, look, it's unpleasant, right? It's also really, really old. It's, it's ancient history. What does this have to do with me? Uh, why am I reading about somebody else's judgment? And some people are probably thinking, uh, it's not about Jesus. I mean, come on, we're in the New Testament, right? What's, what's the point of all this? And to that, I want to share with you how we are to look at Amos. And in this, we want to tackle the relevance of it. The relevance of Amos, I, I, I present to you really sort of three cases why we need to see this book as something meaningful for us to take in today. Um, yes, yes it's unpleasant to look at a story of judgment. If you, if you come across a carcass in the field, you, you, you're not wanting to look at it and say, oh, that's lovely. No, your first instinct is to say, uh, I don't want to look at that, and to keep on walking. But if you look at an animal that's been devoured, if you realize that you're in the same pen as that animal, you might want to have a look at what's going on. Or if you see an animal's dropped dead of some, some disease or some illness, you, you do an autopsy, not because autopsies are fun, well, maybe some strange people find that. You do an autopsy to work out the cause of death. You would do an autopsy to look and say, why has this happened? And so Amos for us is a cautionary tale. Another way to look at Amos is as a window or as a mirror. Uh, If you are carrying a phone, can you pull it out right now? Just go ahead and hold it up for me. Hold it up. It's all right. Hold it up. Let's go. I think there's more phones in here than that. Come on now. (laughs) It's all right, you can flick off of Insta, that's all right. Flick off of Insta, that's okay, all right? Hold it up, right? The world changed about 15 years ago. I'm not going to get the date exactly right. When you got one of these, when you got a smartphone, whether you're an early adopter or a late adopter, uh, this device really puts in your hands the ability to open a window to wherever you want it to look. It's a window wherever you want it to be. Amos, in the same way, functions like a window into God's world, into God's character, into how God acts and behaves. But as the book of James tells us, the word of God is also like a mirror. And so as we look through this window of time, look back to Israel and their dealings with with Yahweh, We look at that, we also are not just peering into the past, but we're actually holding up a mirror as well, and we're reflecting on ourselves. And in that sense, it's a guide for our times. You say, what does those times have to do with our times? Well, just go back, all the way back to that picture of the fruit. This fruit on the table over there is ripe. It's ready to eat. But a little while ago, it wasn't ready yet. The Bible presents you and I in process of a ripening. There is a, there is a time that is coming. There is a, there's a process that's going on right now. We are looking at a completed process, but we ourselves find, find ourselves in a process that has yet to be completed. And as we look to see how that will unfold it's instructive to see what the end of a people's dealings with God may look like I'm going to try to jump back without giving you visual whiplash alright so here we come to Amos chapter 8 verse 1 to 14 uh, calling for silence let's pray as we ask God's help our father in heaven we are absolutely desperate for you And we pray now that through the Holy Spirit, we would know what it is you have to say to us about who you are and about who we are in these times. God, would you give us strength, that you give us insight through the Holy Spirit to receive your word, not just as bits of knowledge that we might add to a database or a library, but as, as seed that is sown that will mature and develop and grow and bear good fruit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amos 8, calling for silence. We first come, verses 1 and 2, to a vision. And here, God reveals that Israel is ready for judgment. Israel is ready for judgment. The big question today is, have we heard God's word to us? For some of you, that may be a weird question because you're not accustomed to thinking of God as speaking. But the Bible presents God as speaking. He's a speaking God. He's a personal being. He has thoughts. He has a will. He has emotion. God is a living being who speaks and communicates with his creation. The big question we need to wrestle with, have we heard God's word to us? You'll see why that's paramount the big idea where we're sort of looking to build to is that those who ignore God suffer for or just suffer in his silence. Those who ignore God suffer for his silence. Whether it's a silence that they've imposed or what, as you'll see, the ultimate judgment is God, God removing or forsaking a people. So the big question we're going to be wrestling with is Have we heard God's word to us, and those who ignore God suffer for his silence? I need to make an apology here. I forgot to upload the slides to your QR code, so if you're you're looking at that, that's last week's. My bad. All right, the fourth vision, ripe fruit. God reveals Israel is ready for judgment. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit, exhibit A, It's not the kind of fruit they had. (laughs) They had different kind of fruit than what we do. What do you see, Amos, he asked. He said, a basket of ripe fruit. I answered, the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. What's going on here? Uh, There's a wordplay going on in Hebrew. The wordplay is the word for summer fruit sounds like the word for the end. So when he shows Amos a basket of summer fruit to the ear, it sounds like a basket of the end. And so God shows Amos the fruit, and then God says, this is the time of end for my people. NIV has done a good job here of, of conveying the link between those two ideas uh, with the word right. But why are they bringing fruit? One of, the, one of the ways that God decided for his people to interact with him was to hold festivals And one of those festivals was the bringing of the harvest. And so you would come to to the harvest festival and you would bring your your fruit. You would come to God with with the produce, the crops of the land. I really like how Alec Mottier has described this in his commentary. He says, they came into the presence of God not just with ripe fruit, but as ripe fruit. Say that again. They came into the presence of God, not just with ripe fruit, but as ripe fruit, ripened over all the months and years of moral and spiritual probation, which he had afforded them, and now, sadly, ready for a particularly dreadful harvest time. They are the fruit that's come to ripen. And it's not... A harvest of joy, it's a harvest of bitterness because the harvesting of these people is leading to their judgment and destruction. So God is saying to them, the time is here. Jesus would tell a similar parable about God being a vineyard owner and he goes by a tree looking for fruit and there's no fruit on the tree. And so the The the, the worker says, should I pluck the tree out? And God says, no, dig a pit around it, water it, feed it, let, let, let the tree have another year, and we'll see if it bears fruit. Jesus and Amos are echoing each other here in the idea that God allows a time and a season for things. You see, many of us think God's like we are, where if something's wrong in our world, we immediately lash out in anger. We immediately pull the levers of power and we re-orchestrate the situation to make sure that we're happy. That's what we would do if we were in charge. But God is patient and loving and kind and so he gives people time. But now the time is up. Next we come to the verdict, verses 3 to 7. Here we see Israel's guilt, and you're going to see in this depiction uh, a pretty painful picture, actually, of of the corruption of their lifestyle, but also the the corruption of their worship. And here we're going to see that God remembers their corruption and idolatry. In that day, declares the sovereign, sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Now, temple and palace here are interchangeable or kind of loosely synonymous ideas so this idea that sort of the corridors of power as well as the corridors of worship uh, the word can mean either one these songs will turn to wailing so the idea is that they got all the guitars out, the band, you know, the drummer's going off like Jared's going off this morning, right, uh, and everything's going great, and the hands are waving, and, and everyone's singing, you know, you might think of a campaign rally, you know, where they, they got the music playing, and people holding up signs, and everybody's cheering. God says, all that exuberance, I'm going to turn it into wailing. Which, if you haven't been around somebody who's been so grieved that they're wailing, Chances are you've forgotten how uncomfortable that is. There's a type of grief that settles into a human heart that, that leads them to just simply cry out and it's, it's not a pleasant cry. It's not often a rational cry. It is simply the, the audible breaking of the soul. And the picture here is that all that exuberance is flipped into mourning. And then it gets very difficult, many, many bodies flung everywhere, followed by silence. The suddenness shows that these people had no idea what was coming. And so Amos says, hear this, who are these people, who are these bodies? Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor. Maybe you read the news recently about that tragedy that happened in Korea, where there's a group of people who were trying to 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 ascend into a venue and the people at the top tumbled and fell, but the people who were behind them just kept going. You see, where we're going is more important than the people getting in our way. And so you trample. They trample the needy. This isn't some revolution, this isn't some French revolution, you know, off with their heads, off with the royalty. No, this is the people in power literally trotting on the backs and heads of people who are impoverished. These are the people who are so busy singing and dancing. They do away with the poor of the land. You're really a drain on our economy. You're really a drain on our system. We don't want you. We're going to redraw districts. We're going to redraw voting blocks. We're going to redraw bus routes. We're going to put you in places where we don't want to see you. We we, we just really don't want you here. Verse 4, 5, excuse me. And this is what they say. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? It's not that they're not doing the religious things. They are. It's that it's perfunctory. It's a ritual. It's a box-ticking exercise. It's something that they feel they have to do. And really, if you ask them, if you pulled them up, if you pulled up next to them after church and you had, and you had a coffee with them, they'd say things like, man, these services are so long. Man, like, I got things to do. And if you got an honest moment or a private moment with him, they're they're saying, look, really, bodily I'm here, but actually what I want to be doing, I don't want to be celebrating the Sabbath. I don't want to be doing this new moon festival. Really, I just want to get back to work. When can I get back to work? What's their work look like? Well, it's corrupt. They want to market wheat. They want to sell grain. They, they want to make a profit. And they're actually really good at making a profit. What they do is they skimp on the measure and they boost the price with dishonest scales. When I was a kid, you go through the grocery store and, and you, you go to buy fruit at the grocery store. They had one of those big hanging baskets. Anybody remember those days? Right? And and, and on, on the basket was was the little needle and it told you how much, you know, how many apples you were going to buy, how much the apples weighed, and so on and so forth. Nowadays, you just scan it, and that big computer thing just says, this is, you know, this is how much it weighs. But occasionally, you'd go through a grocery store, and 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 you'd find, like, one of those hanging things, and it's like a really heavy bowl. <laughs> you know, you're like, hey, when you're weighing that thing up, like... <laughs> Is that calibrated properly? Well, these people were were not calibrating the measure properly. So so what they were doing was they were selling less grain at a rate that was higher than it should have been. All the accountants are like, smells like profit to me. (laughs) That's exactly what they were thinking. But when you ask what they actually sold or what they actually bought, they're buying the poor. Have you ever thought that an economic system can become so corrupt that what is actually being bought and sold are not merely goods and commodities? Sorry, Adam Smith. But what's being bought and sold is actually people. Is that possible? Is it possible to create a market in which Those on the lower end of the market simply exist to feed those on the higher end of the market. And they sell the sweepings with the wheat. I mean, this is, this is the kicker with me. You, know, you, you, you go to this grocery store, you say, look, I, I want to buy, you know, I don't know, five bushels of wheat or whatever. And, and, and they're like, okay, great. And while they're gathering the wheat, they're sweeping up the dirt, <laughs> sweeping up the dirt off the floor. You get a few rocks in there. Right? A few rocks, maybe a few, maybe a few cockroaches, right? Just stick it in there. Weigh it all up, you know. It's corruption. And so God says, I will never, listen to that, I will never forget anything they've done. That is a chilling thought. If you say, he's God, he has to forgive. Explain Amos 8 seven to me and there's an irony here in verse seven the Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob I will never forget anything that they have done this is the verdict Israel is guilty their worship is corrupt their their, their practices are corrupt and God's going to remember We have here a people who are so consumed by their own greed that they have really no thought for God or for their fellow man. God wanted their time, and they were going to give God the time, but they really, these festivals, these religious gatherings, they were simply boxes to tick. Why? Because at the end, what they were really worshiping was themselves. They were worshiping themselves. Their worship of self caused them to make idols out of work, out of commerce, out of materialism, and it made them it it made slaves of other people, and it robbed them all the while, doing it with a smile on their face and a pat on one another's back and handshakes, saying, "Yep, this is all right and good." And I want to ask you today, Windsor District Baptist Church, are we all that far from this in Sydney today? Are we all that far? Is church an inconvenience? Are sermons too long? Is communion a hassle? Now, don't get me wrong. I have so much grace for people who are in very difficult circumstances, for whom the regular rhythms of church that may suit most people, it just doesn't fit them right now. I have, gr- I have so much grace for that. But what this text is doing is, this text is saying, let's skip past all the periphery and let's just, one after another, ask ourselves, why are we here? Do we want to be here? Have we come to worship God? Have we come to be with the Lord's people? Have we come to celebrate the hope we have in Christ? Or do we secretly just want to wait till we can get back to the office or back on the road or back to the shops so that we can create wealth for ourselves that we will spend on ourselves in order to delight, to amuse, and to secure ourselves? I want to say, perish the thought. I would never be like that. But hello, I'm right there. Are we really all that far off from this? God is not worshiped in a physical space, but he is worshiped in a real way. And Jesus said, those who seek him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we look at the sentence now, what, what happens? Here we have, excuse me, I jumped too quick. Here as the verdicts come down, the sentencing is that Israel is going to lose its God. Or another way to put it is, they chose a different God and God said, okay, fine, I'm not going to keep arguing with you. I'm not going to keep striving with you to be your God when you've so clearly told me you have another God that you want to worship. And so God's going to forsake fallen Israel to silence. And this, this really is bracketed into two halves, this, this part. Verses 8 to 10 show a land that is shaking and trembling And verses eleven to fourteen show a people that are shaking and trembling and ultimately falling. Verse 8 to 14, God God says through the prophet, Will not the land tremble for this? And all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. I want you to think about this. I grew up in California. I know what an earthquake feels like. For those of you who haven't been in an earthquake, give thanks to God tonight, right? It's not it's not a nice feeling. Now, there's lots of natural disasters, and and there's things like fires and floods that are terrible, but the one thing that an earthquake has over a fire or a flood, usually at the great scale, is an earthquake has the element of surprise. An earthquake starts, and I'm telling you, when it starts, it's on. I'll never forget the day I was upstairs. It was 5 o'clock in the morning. This is the Northridge quake of 1996. I am probably an hour and a half away from the epicenter. I'm down an hour and a half south, 1996, five in the morning, all of a sudden, my room looks like it's spinning. I, 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 I cannot find my feet. Now, first I thought it's because I, I was sleeping in a waterbed, don't judge me, I had a waterbed, all right? It wasn't because I was in a waterbed, okay? I realized that actually other things were moving. And my first thought was, ah! This is scary. This is, a, this is a panic. My next thought was, what did they teach me in school? Get under a desk. I don't have a desk in my room that was big enough to get under. So next, the next thing was I stood in the doorway. And as I stood there in the doorway watching the house kind of rock and reel, Finally, after a few minutes, it subsided. Again, I'm an hour and a half away from the epicenter. Finally, it subsided, and I still remember I had enough time for the earthquake to finish to run down the stairs, to go out the back door to look at the pool that my parents had installed recently and to watch the water still, still settling. I'll never forget that image. God says the land here is is rising and falling. There's a cosmic catastrophic judgment. The whole land will rise like the Nile, will be stirred up, and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, we have more sort of creation portents, signs. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Again the, the, the creation order being up, upended. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I'll make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. They're singing and dancing when this falls. When this judgment hits, they are totally blindsided. The only way they could be totally blindsided is if they were so consumed with themselves and the gods of their own making that they didn't have room for a creator who would actually come to hold the earth accountable. Now, losing any child is bitter, but there's, there, there's another meaning in here. The loss of an only son means the end of the line. It's the end of your family in that day. It's the end of the generation. God said, you're going to weep bitterly like those who've lost their only son is you're going to realize this is it. It's up. There's two kinds of weeping in the Bible. There's a weeping that is a weeping of contrition, uh, a, a weeping of being overcome with, it, with your own sense of, of sinfulness and brokenness, and and calling out to God in that devastation. There's another kind of weeping, a weeping that comes after the verdict, a weeping that comes after the fall. This is the weeping of Esau, who couldn't get back the blessing. It's the weeping of Judas, who knew, at least thought he knew, he could never go back. That's this kind of weeping. The second half of the sentence is, A focusing, narrowing in on God's word, the the prophet says, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. I was reading about the temptation of Jesus this morning, and as the devil came to tempt him every time, Jesus responded with, It is written. And he gave him the word of the Lord, and he endured the temptation. And he left in the power of the Spirit. God's saying here, there's going to come a time where, where you're going to go to call to mind the word of the Lord, and you're not going to know what it was. You're not going to know what it says. It's not going to be heard. The result is that people are going to Stagger from sea to sea, wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord. They want something. They're looking for it, but they will not find it. And in that day, the lovely young women and the strong young men will faint. Folks, when your young people aren't coping, you know, I'm getting to that stage in life where I'm like, how many stairs are at that venue? You know, Uh, I'm at that stage in life where I'm like, how much Panadol do I have in the pantry? Uh, do I need to pick some up today? Right? That wasn't me. 20, and I, I've had health problems. That wasn't me at like 21, 22. It's like, hey, do you want to go play some, you know, pick up basketball with these really high quality athletes? Yeah, absolutely. I can do that. Sure. Right? There's something about being sort of young, And and in that young adulthood, you're you're, you're kind of physically in shape and mentally you're, you're, you're kind of ready to go. Well, these are the ones who were staggering and fainting. And then the irony comes back into view. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, that's likely a reference to the idol. As surely as your God lives, Dan, Dan was in the north. As surely as the God of Beersheba lives, Beersheba was in the south, so we have the north and the south, the extreme of the territory, right? They will fall, never to rise again. This is the sentence that comes. Israel loses its God. God forsakes fallen Israel to silence. Again, Alec Machir. he says, don't throw that phrase around, God forsaken. Don't throw that phrase around. It's a terrible, awful thing. It's an awful thing. We banty it around like I had a rough day at work. In reality, it's it's the ultimate judgment. And he leaves them in their silence. They were ripe. They were ready for judgment. What are some lessons that we can learn from Israel? Number one, what, what harvest is ripening in us? The picture here is that these people were being given space and time, and there was a, there was a developing, a, a growing, and it's worth us asking, what's, what's ripening in us? What's coming to fruition in us? Next, whose advantage are we seeking? Most people, I don't care if you're a multitasker or you're a self-professed monotasker, right? (laughs) You're a multitasker or a monotasker. Most people only live by serving one thing. There's really only one thing you can organize your life around to say, this is the advantage I'm pursuing. Paul would write in the book of Philippians, he would say about Timothy, he said, I have no one else like him because everyone else looks to their own interests But Timothy looks to the interests of Christ. May God give us more Timothys. People who seek the advantage of Christ, they seek what he wants, they pursue what his objectives are. Thirdly, learning from Israel, who is at the center of our worship? When you go home today, what are you going to tell yourself and your family? What are you going to say about what you did this morning? Are you going to say, I went to church? Are you going to say, I worshiped God this morning? I joined with my brothers and sisters and we brought glory to the name of Jesus. Are we going to say, I sat under the word of God this morning? Or are we going to say, I listened to a sermon? Are we going to say, I participated in the Lord's Supper this morning? Who is at the center of our worship? Fourthly, how devoted are we to what God says? Has it registered with you that God is a speaking God and that you'll listen to what he says? I want you to hear from Jesus. He has some answers to these things. Jesus would say in Matthew 12, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. If you want... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all the things that God gave us as a delight. If you want those things to come to fruition in you, guess what? The tree has to be made good. The tree must be made good. Don't chase the blessings of the gospel in the power of the flesh. You need to receive the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God comes upon those who believe and hear the Word of God and combine that hearing with faith. Whose advantage are we seeking? Jesus would say in Matthew 25, verse 40, He would say, Whatever you've done for the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whose advantage are you seeking? Are the poor on our horizon? When we finish our conversation today, are we only going to talk to the people we already know? Are we going to find somebody that we think maybe doesn't know many people and we're going to actually come around them and say, hey, tell me a bit about your story because I value you, not because you have this preset space in my life, but I value you as someone God loves and God's wanting to bring into the fellowship. Whose advantage are we seeking? Who's at the center of our worship? Excuse me, back up. Jesus would say, John 2, 16, as he's flipping over tables where they're selling doves, he said, get it out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's not simply because they were exchanging money on the premises. No, the purpose of a market is everyone in the market is seeking their own advantage. Do you get it? The market is the place you buy and sell, the the place where I go with my needs and desires and you come meet me there with your needs and desires and we transact business. But the house of God is not a market. It's a place where we worship. It's a place we bring an offering. And finally... What would Jesus say, John 8, 47, in his controversy with the Pharisees? Whoever belongs to God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. That doesn't mean that the Bible is always going to make sense, that you're going to pick up lamentations and say, oh, I totally know how this has to do with the gospel. That doesn't mean that. But it means when the word of God is given you recognize the one who is speaking. is your creator. You hear his heart of love and righteousness and holiness and you say, yes God, I received that and you're telling me now, pastor, that, that there is a mediator. You're telling me now that there's an intercessor. That that it's not just me and the standard and God looking on, but it's me and the standard, and he's bleeding. And his blood is covering my sin. You see, those who belong to God hear the word of God. Those who ignore God will suffer for his silence in their life, invite the worship band to come back up and as they're coming I want to share this reflection from Don Carson I read it several years ago and I read it again had the privilege of reading it yesterday this was probably written in the 90s and again I want you to ask how different is this this is his reflection from Amos chapter 8 he says so many Bibles so many Bibles and so little thoughtful reading of them. The next stage is the Bible as the source of proof texts. What does that mean? That means somebody like me gets on the stage and says, here, let me tell you all of my great ideas and plans and by the way, go check out Isaiah 31. <laughs> the stage after that is the Bible is a quaint relic Oh, was not that a nice part of your history and tradition? The next is the Bible is antiquarian magic. We don't know what it does. We don't know what it's good for. We can't understand or comprehend it, but I'm just going to hold on to it. And like the former U.S. president, I'm just going to stand and pose with it. I don't know what it is or what's in it, but I'm just going to stand and pose in front of it and take my picture. Why? Because it's somehow mystical and magical. And the last... The next stage, excuse me, Carson says, is implacable ignorance. And all the while, a growing hunger for something wise, something stable, something intelligent, something prophetic, something true. It's like he's reading our headlines. And the hunger is not satisfied. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are the way and the truth and the life. May we hear you. Amen.